Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. So we continue here in the study of this amazing book, these 66 chapters written by the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, prophet Isaiah. Isaiah goes through and takes virtually every major characteristic of God and speaks to them at some point in time here in the book of Isaiah. When we think of things in our own way and in our own mind, we think of them with our limited human understanding. And so when we think of justice, we think of justice in light of our own judicial system, our own courts, attorneys. We think of fairness and justice according to the way man would be able to best implement justice. The thing that you're going to see in the passage before us tonight, this entire chapter, is that God is perfectly just. Whatever he judges, he judges with absolute 100% accuracy, and he will make good on absolutely every inequity that has ever occurred. Every one of them. God is perfectly just. He's not just just some of the time. He's not just just part of the time. He's not just with people who deserve a just God. He is just 100% of the time. There are a lot of things that we see in Scripture that when you look at it, it's almost as if God forgot to be just in that moment. Let me give you an example. There's one before you. God's going to actually use the Assyrian army to wipe out his own people. And you're kind of going, what is that? Why would God ever allow something like that? And yet God is not only going to allow it, he's going to purpose it. Because he's perfectly just, he can do such things. We can't. We have no capacity in our human thinking to be as God is and to think as God does. And so as we look at this passage tonight, we'll take the entire chapter and we're going to see God in this just way, moving to accomplish his purposes and to do exactly what a just God would do. So would you join me? We'll pray and we'll begin in verse 1. Father, thank you that you are just. Lord, you miss nothing. We understand that you allow things, you cause things at times that we do not understand. Lord, there is so much injustice in this world. Lord, many of us in this room have suffered through great injustice, but you haven't missed any of it. And you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you, And you are the bestower of vengeance upon those who need it and everything in between. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Bless us as your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed in your own life it almost seems like bad people profit more in this world than good people? Anybody have that experience? Like the more you walk with the Lord, the more it seems like You're almost punished for it. Maybe at times you look at your life and go, man, I was doing better when I was a heathen. And I don't mean to say that that's true, but I think there are times that we can all look back on our lives. Man, things were easier when I was not walking with the Lord. Here's why. Because when you're walking in the flesh, you get the dictates of your flesh. You're able to, in that sense, actually reward yourself with bad behavior. And the enemy certainly will come along and help you with that bad behavior to help you think 
that will actually do something that's positive for you. And so the enemy steps in into those circumstances and situations all over the world and tries to convince you that following God is a bad thing. That if you walk with the Lord at times, I've actually had Christians come to me and they're actually genuinely concerned. It's like, man, I gave my life to Christ and my life fell apart. And then I say, that's called spiritual warfare, brother. That's called spiritual warfare, sister. That's the enemy trying to discourage you from walking with God and trying to convince you that there is no good thing in it. In Isaiah's time, the unjust laws, the oppressive decrees had robbed innocent people of their very meager possessions. And we're now going to see how God in his way and in his time will respond to it. Verse one, Isaiah 10, woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees. One of the things that I try and encourage people in, especially in our day and time when there's so much vitriol in our political system, is that God doesn't miss a thing. And I actually feel sorry for people who book unjust laws, who take advantage of innocent people, and who use the common man for their own benefit and for their own glory. Because your Bible says, woe to people who do such things. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that doesn't fix my problem today. There is a far worse problem that faces people who do such things, and that is judgment day. God is going to make right these things. And that doesn't mean on this earth in every circumstance, but it does mean that God will take care of every last unjust decree who write misfortune. I think maybe we ought to take these first four verses, copy them and paste them into a whole lot of emails and send them to some of our governing officials, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice. What about those people who've been incarcerated only to find out they were actually innocent? who take what is right from the poor of my people. I want you to see what's going on here. This is a holy, just God who's saying, bummer on you if you take advantage of the poor, if you write laws that take advantage of my people. So those things which fly in the face of our Christian beliefs, they flew in the face of the Jewish people's understanding of who God was and is. God sees every bit of it, that widows may be their prey, that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment? That's a question. When God decides enough's enough, no one will stand against what he's going to do. And in the desolation which will come from afar. And to whom will you flee? And where will you leave your glory? Where are you going to stash all your money? You know, an offshore bank account is not going to protect these guys. They're, they're private islands, private jets, little compounds all over the world. The things that they think they've gotten away with or even prospered in. You can trust God to be absolutely just. There is a day of reckoning coming for every soul. And unless one repents, commits their life to Christ, and flees these things, then you're going to stand before a holy God who's quite able to make good on what he said. Woe to them. The disaster that will befall you. Who are you going to leave your glory to is another way to translate that. Without me... They shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. For all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, can I remind you that the chapters and verses were not in this text originally? So this is a very long, continuous writing by the prophet Isaiah. So these ideas are not separated by chapters chapters. 
in the way that God purposed them by the Holy Spirit through the author, which is the prophet Isaiah. And so we begin here with three questions and a warning. And you can kind of see them there in verse three, the questions. If God can't bring you to repentance, then he has to lift his hand to chasten us. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do when that time comes? What is it that, what's going to be your excuse in the desolation which will come from afar? That's the question. What are you going to do when a holy and just God actually judges the things that you think you got away with? Now, praise God for the grace of God, amen? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned unto his own way. We're going to find that here in this book. It's a New Testament principle that was authored by the prophet Isaiah. You see, God wants us to turn. God wants us to repent. God wants the world to turn. God wants the world to repent. But he is still just. And so he allows people to do what it is that they think they are getting away with. The second question, to whom will you flee for your help? If you're not willing to turn to God, who are you going to turn to that's going to be able to protect you from him? What are you going to do when he stretches out his hand? You're not going to be able to cry uncle. You're not going to be able to go mommy. You're not going to be able to turn to the government. You're not going to be able to change countries. Well, I don't like what's going on here in America, so I'm going to go someplace else. There is nowhere the hand of the Lord does not stretch out. And so God's setting the stage for us here to understand who he is and what his character is like. The third question, and where will you leave your glory? Look, God does not suffer indefinitely, and he does not allow injustice indefinitely. And no matter what somebody thinks they're getting away with. I'm reminded of Jeffrey Epstein. I think there's a whole bunch of people that are kind of thinking he got away with it. You know, whether he was murdered or whether he actually committed suicide. And I'm not suggesting that either of those two things are good. I will tell you point blank, they're terrible, even to a criminal. But I'm telling you this, if he committed suicide, he thought he was getting away with it, and he had not repented, what lies ahead is infinitely worse than what he did to everyone. So you see, we want our pound of flesh. We would like to see him pay for what he did. That's our humanness. I want to strongly caution you that God is a far better punisher and a far better server of his punishment than we will ever be. And you can trust God that whatever is needed will be done. And so if as we think, that man was as perverse as is believed, then when he stepped out of time and into eternity, he heard some words I don't think he was waiting to hear. Depart, for I've never known you. And he sits right now waiting the final judgment at the great white throne. And everything he ever did to every child will be repaid. Stripe for stripe, eye for eye, God is perfectly just. Now, some people will say, well, that's a vengeful God. No, that's a just God. Because we have our whole lives to square this away. It's the beauty of grace. God's sitting there saying, repent, repent, repent. Turn from these things. Do not do iniquity. Turn away from your sins. We need to listen. And so there's some warnings here. And here's the warning. That's basically don't fleece the flock. Don't be unjust. Don't take advantage of people. And whether this is the church or whether this is business 
or whether this is government, God has the same opinion about injustice. It's the same opinion about fleecing people who have nothing, taking advantage of the poor and the needy. Peter writes much the same thing. Privately, these people speak damnable heresy, but God's hearing every word. And for those evangelists or so-called evangelists that prey on widows, people on social security, trying to convince them that if they will just send in all that they have, God will give them back tenfold, they better read this passage. Woe to them who are unjust, who take advantage of the poor and the needy with hollow and empty promises. The same is true for a government. When the government steals from those who've earned it, the same is true for a bank robber. Same is true across the board. God isn't missing a thing. And so church, I would encourage you to pray more for people who are in that problem because what lies ahead is infinitely worse than anything you could possibly think of doing to them. Leave it in God's hands. Don't take it upon yourself. What they're going to get is going to be their due, but you should pray for them to turn from that sin, and you should pray for them to be healed because that's what God wants. God does not want to pass his judgment eternally on anyone. He's unwilling that any should perish, but is desiring that all should come to repentance. So we should have God's heart. That's the church. That's why I am so anti these absolutely horrific so-called discernment ministry websites. All they do is air the dirty laundry of absolutely every person that they can possibly think about. Without its context, and their purpose is destruction. If those people would spend as much time praying for the people that they're trying to castigate, I wonder if their situation wouldn't change. And so be careful that you don't get caught up trying to play God. God has it under control. And sometimes we think on these things and we're like, why would God do that? Job chapter 1, if you'd turn there. If you can't find it, I'll read it to you. Probably the oldest book of man's writing. This particular book might be as much as 3,500 years old. And now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Does that kind of freak you out a little bit? That the devil himself... Before he falls, because we're going to see that in chapter 14. And Satan came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, here's a conversation. Now there is a distance between God and Satan. Make no bones about it. Satan cannot look upon God. No one who has any evil in them can. But God communicated with Satan when he decided to try and barge into heaven. From where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I want you to really underline this. Mark it up, highlight it in the margin of your Bible. Have you considered my servant Job? He is like the most despicable, awful, horrible, nasty, mean-spirited, sinning fool that you've ever met. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? Notice what it says. That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man and one who fears God and shuns evil. In other words, of all of the people of the earth, there was not a single person who would rise above the righteousness of Job. If you were going to go around the earth and look for somebody who was a walking, talking Jesus follower in that day and time, in that vernacular, 
If you were going to try and find someone who in the Old Testament, in a sense, was a, was a person that you could look at as we would look at a believer today, someone who loved God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, was walking with the Lord, someone who absolutely was living their life to be well-pleasing to God, it was Job. It was Job. There wasn't a single person on the face of the earth that was more righteous than Job in a practical sense. His works were at the top of the heap. He actually shunned evil. He said, get away from me. He did what James encouraged us to do, flee the devil. That was Job. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? What's up with this guy? Come on, there's got to be something more to this. Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and around all that he has on every side? In other words, haven't you been treating him special? Haven't you protected him from everything? Isn't he just in a, like a Christian bubble? Isn't he like rolling around in one of those hamster balls? And God's on the outside, so you can't get to him? And it's made out of ballistic cloth and Teflon, and it's like it's hard as rock? You bless the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. And now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Right to your face, God. That's what he, he's going to look you in the eye and go, nah, I'm not following you. One of the scariest verses in the Bible for me. Because I'd like to think I try and do what God tells me to do. Now, I'm not saying I'm as good as Job, but I endeavor to try and live my life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, get him. Behold, all he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand to his person. Now, why is that important? Because God specifically limited what Satan could do. He said, you can mess with him. And we're going to find out, if you read the rest of the story, you're going to find out Satan messed with Job. And Satan may be messing with you tonight but I want you to focus in on what that says. But you don't have the right to go any further than I let you go. Now think about that in light of the fact that God is just. Perfectly just. That God knows exactly what you can handle. There is no temptation, but that which is common to man and in it, there's a way of escape that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you, says the Lord. The greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. Good of all of the things that Job had, God was going to allow almost every last thing to be stripped of him except for his very life. But God had a plan. But God had a plan. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, I don't like that plan. I don't know if I want to listen to any more of this. Why don't you just go to some other part of the Bible? I love this part of the Bible, and here's why. Read the end of the story. Because in the end, Job had everything returned, everything tenfold, by the hand of that just God. The same God that limited Satan in what he could do was the same God who said, Satan, you don't get him, he's mine. And I'm gonna bless him. Doesn't mean that Job didn't go through hell. Job went through hell. Job had a life that most of us, we look at it and we're like, man, I, I, I would have followed his wife's advice and killed myself. His wife actually says, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? How do you like to have your wife tell you that, guys? 
You wake up in the morning, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, I don't mean to make fun of that, but I'm telling you, that's how good God is. Because Job could hear those words, live through those words, and come out on the other side shining like the sun. Ten times wealthier than when he was on the other side of those problems when Satan made the false accusation against him that he was only following God for the perks. The enemy's going to try and lie to you. Don't believe him. Verse 5. There's good news for you. God never loses. God never loses. God never loses. We look at everything from a temporal viewpoint. God never loses. That doesn't mean there aren't battles that people don't get wounded in. Doesn't mean that there aren't times when things are unfair and unjust. It simply means exactly what I'm saying. God never loses. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Now see, this is where we can actually put this into practice. God was going to allow the Assyrian army to come and destroy his chosen people to take 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel fully captive to the point that they had no more inheritance in the land. Judah and Benjamin are going to be left down in Judah. You might say, well, that's, I mean, how can you love a God like that? Because God never loses. And the staff in whose hand is my indignation, I will send him against an ungodly nation. You see, Assyria was simply a tool for the righteous justice and judgment of God. God does what God needs to do to accomplish his plans and purposes. And sometimes those things are quite extreme. Sometimes there are deep, horrible pain in our lives. Sometimes they are the loss of loved ones, family. Sometimes they're wars. Sometimes they're economic instability. Sometimes they're poverty. Sometimes they're disease and sickness. But God never loses. He doesn't lose. No one can snatch them out of my hand that are my fathers, is what Jesus said. No one. God's saying, look, I know what Assyria is doing. And against my people of my wrath, I will give them charge to seize and spoil and to take prey, to tread them down like mire of the streets. And yet so he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. But in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations, for he says, For are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish and Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? He's saying it doesn't matter what city of the world comes against me, they're nothing compared to my power. I'm not put off by the things of this world. In other words, God is always able. He always finishes what he starts. He's saying, basically, I'm going to use Assyria. But I'm going to wipe out Assyria eventually as well. I'm going to allow something to happen that you aren't going to understand. And the children of Israel would go through more than a thousand years of these types of things happening to them. And every single time, God was basically saying, would you please turn away from those false gods? Would you stop living your life away from me? Would you quit capitulating to the things of the world? Please stop following after false gods. Turn to me and repent, and things will be well with your soul. And what we're not told is in every single circumstance, in every situation, there were people in every one of these cities and every one of these situations to whom God looked and said, that is exactly what I saw in Sodom. The city needed to go, but the righteous got spared. So don't make an assumption that because God says these things that everybody paid the price for everybody else's sin. God is perfectly 
just, and he never loses. And so God's able to differentiate between the righteous and the unrighteous. God is able to see things that maybe that person in your life is engaged in, but you're not. He's able to deliver you and he's able to punish them and vice versa. He can split hairs, in other words, with these things. Sinasherib is going to come against Jerusalem. We're going to see that eventually when we get to chapter 37. But in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 32, we have a story of that particular battle. In verse 9, it says, And after this, Sinasherib, the king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. But he had all the forces with him and laid siege against Lachish, so just slightly to the north of Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and to all of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? In other words, what are you doing? Can't you see we're going to wipe you out? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and thirst? saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the me. That's the JG nearly inspired version there. Acted out. Yeah, he's, he's mocking God and he's mocking God's people. Saying, what are you doing following after God? Are you really going to stay there and starve to death just so that you can say you were right with God? The answer to that question is absolutely because God wasn't going to let him get wiped out. He had it under control. And he was able to make good on his promises. And basically, Sinasherib saying, look, don't listen to this guy. He's crazy. The devil is going to tell you the same thing. Don't listen to God. He's crazy. It's crazy to be a Christian. What are you doing? Life is passing you by. You get out and live a little. Loosen up. Go back to those things you used to do. Remember those parties you used to go to? How much fun they were? The devil, devil never tells you about the aftermath, does he? He doesn't tell you the whole story. Look, God's speaking here and he's reminding the Jewish people, I'm going to take care of this guy. Now, I'll give you a little preview of chapter 37. The Assyrian army, when you go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is actually on a mountaintop, on a ridge, basically, except the city itself sits down below Mount Scopus. So there is high ground all around the ancient city of Jerusalem, what would have been the Canaanite city during that time. The Canaanite city was even further down in the valley towards the confluence of the Hinnom and the Kidron stream. And so here comes the Assyrians. In chapter 37, we have a story there that is an accurate account of what's going to happen. And I'll give you a little preview. In one night, one angel of the Lord goes out and wipes out 185,000 of the Assyrians. One angel of the Lord in one night. You see, God never loses. God never loses. But if you had been in that city, these little tiny rock walls that when you go there today, you, you look at them, they're maybe 10 to 15 feet high on the exterior where the Canaanite walls are. They were so bad that under the time of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah laughed at them and said, if a fox runs up these walls, they'll cave in. The people are going, man, they're looking up at the Assyrian army. Now imagine when they wake up in the morning and they look out on that hillside. There are only 875,000 inhabitants in Jerusalem today. And it occupies every bit of available space in that region. Imagine that there are 185,000 dead soldiers scattered all over the hills and the people get up and they go, God never loses. It was worth it. God wins. Church, we need to remember these things because the enemy's trying to get us to, to give up. 
trying to get us to cave in. This whole picture gives such an incredible underpinning to the story of Peter. Do you remember when Peter was with Jesus, when Jesus was arrested in Matthew chapter 26? Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, put your sword away. Now remember, all that's with the guards and with Annas and Caiaphas is a cohort of Roman soldiers. That would be a hundred. And Jesus said, could I not call down 10,000 angels? If one could wipe out 185,000 Assyrians, what do you you think 10,000 of them could do? If you do a little simple math, you're going to find out that's pretty much all the inhabitants of the earth, and then some. God never loses. He's got more than enough power to do anything and everything, and he's simply speaking into our lives, would you please follow me? Would you please walk with me? Would you please trust me? Would you live your life? You you may have some Job moments, but would you not give up? Would you stand fast? Would you steady on? Would you keep pushing? Keep prodding? Put one foot in front of the other. Go where God goes and do what God asks you to do. It's going to be worth it. You see, the Assyrians were going to think that they had this under control. And the Assyrians were kind of a type, if you will, of the world, the world system, and even a type, if you will, of the Antichrist and Satan himself. They were simply, as far as God was concerned, a group that was being used. They, they, they were doing God's bidding. And we have to be careful Notice what it says, verse 10. As my hand has found the kingdoms of idols, whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not also do to Jerusalem and her idols? And therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks For he says, that's the king of Assyria, by the strength of my hand I've done this. By my wisdom I am prudent, for I've removed the boundaries of the people, robbed their treasures. I put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand has found the nest of riches of the people as one gathers eggs that are left. I have gathered all the earth. There was no one who could move his wing or open his mouth for even a peep. Shall the axe boast itself against he who chops with it? Or the saw against itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood? Basically what God is saying is, look, this whole situation, I have completely under control. The king of Assyria thinks he's winning, but he's a loser. The world thinks it's winning, but they're not. People without Christ think they're winning, but they're not. People who love the Lord are the ultimate winners in all things. God's kingdom is going to come and God's will is going to be done. The question is, are you going to be part of it? Because you have a choice. You can choose sides. And God's basically saying, look, do you think an axe handle is going to do you any good as an axe if it doesn't have an axe head on it and someone to swing it? And God's basically saying, look, I'm the one swinging the axe. I'm the one using the saw. I'm the one that's behind all these things. I'm using Assyria for my purposes. It may look like to you that they've got it going on, but they don't have anything going on. I am going to take care of them. So in those situations in your life where you've got some problem that you've come up against, God's got it under control. But you have to trust him. 
and you have to lean on him. Isaiah's going to switch gears. He's going to go from the present time, the king of Assyria, the Assyrian onslaught. He's going to look ahead. And he's actually looking to the time that we call the Great Tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, which we just looked at in Daniel chapter 9 on Sunday nights. Verse 16, he goes on, And therefore the Lord of hosts, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones. And under his glory, he will kindle a burning like a burning of a fire. And so the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it will burn and devour as thorns and briars in one day. And it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. In other words, God's saying eventually he's going to take care of this problem permanently. He's got a plan. And when God says enough's enough and the age of grace is over and the Antichrist rises, that that boastful prince, that willful king that we see in the book of Daniel, when he rises up, his days are numbered. They're going to be short and they're going to be over in a matter of seven years. And then the rest of the trees of his forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. And it shall come to pass, and here's the the secret phrase, in that day. A day of Jacob's trouble, the time that we call the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation, that the remnant of Israel and such as have, have escaped from the house of Jacob, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And so Isaiah looks forward to in that day there in verse 20. We'll get much more into this in chapter 16. But it's interesting because the Jewish people are still looking to Sennacherib. They're still looking to the Babylonian kings. The Jewish people are still looking for alliances and allegiances. And a handful of them, when you travel to Israel, one of the things that strikes you is, in essence, how irreligious most of the Jewish people are. Most of them are not wandering around in the attire of the Hasid, the Hasidim those with the nice curly ringlets and the black hats and the black robes and black shoes and black socks, those that we would call ultra-Orthodox Jews. Most of them are not like that at all. Matter of fact, most of them are Jewish because the country's Jewish and because their heritage is Jewish. And if you were to look up their DNA, it would say 100% Jewish. But as far as worshiping the Lord, they worship commerce, They worship authority. They worship economics. They worship intellect. But to the ultra-Orthodox, they're still looking for Messiah. You know what's interesting when you talk to them? Ask them who they think Messiah is going to be. And almost to a person, they'll tell you he'll be like Moses. One who will lead us out of bondage. One who will deliver us from the hand of the oppressor. They're looking for a military ruler. One who will make their lives better, not one who will save their soul. Why is that important? Because that's been the problem all along. People are looking for a ruler of their lives that will simply make their lives better, not change their lives forever. My life has changed forever. I'm going to heaven. My destiny has been changed. I have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby I am a child of God. My life has been transformed. My mind is being renewed even to this day. You see, one who is looking to a Messiah, one who's looking to the actual King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that would come, would be looking for a permanent solution, not some type of government intervention. 
And when you look, I, I was listening. I don't know if some of you caught it. There was an interview that was done a couple of days ago. Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, was being interviewed. And he went on and on and on about all the wonderful things that are happening in Israel. And they're all true. They are number one in the world in advancement in medical sciences. Number one. They are number one in the world in cell phone digital technology. They are the ones that invented 5G. If you're getting 5G right now, it was invented in Israel. They are number one in the world in water desalinization. They have the largest plants in the world, most efficient. They have the ninth largest economy. They have the seventh most powerful military. This is a country that has less than 9 million people and is a size about a third of San Bernardino County. They're, they're looking to solutions that are not of the Lord because of all of the wealth and because of the economy and because of the technological advances that are going on in Israel. They're still looking for the solution to the problems they have with their neighbors, the Palestinians, the Jordanians, the Lebanese, the Syrians, because those people are right on their borders. They don't have a solution for that. It's still going to take a God-sized solution, as powerful as their military is. One day, the world is going to come against Israel. That's the reason for the tribulation. Now, I want you to notice something. As Jesus spoke to this very issue, in John chapter 5, he says, I came to you in my Father's name, but you did not receive me. There in John chapter 5, verse 43, he says something very interesting. Another is going to come in his own name, and him you're going to receive. Who do you think that is? It's the Antichrist. He's going to come as a political ruler. He's going to come with a solution to the Middle East peace process. He's going to come with some way to organize the Arab states into a peace agreement with Israel. He's going to come with a way to get Russia to back off of their invasion, which will have been launched by then during the Battle of Gog and Magog. And there is going to be another one who is going to come in his own name and they will receive him. But they're going to think he's the Messiah. Why? Because they're looking for one like Moses, not one like Jesus. They're looking for a political ruler. They're looking for somebody to solve all of these, these problems that exist primarily, in a sense, with their government. One of the reasons that the Jewish people are so open to socialism is because for years they have believed if you simply just give enough stuff away, essentially everybody will be at peace with you. Little word for you, it hasn't worked. One third of the Knesset is occupied by people who are Arabs. About 30% of all tax dollars that get spent towards aid and intervention for human life are given to Palestinians. If you're a Palestinian, you can work in Israel all day long, and most do. They're looking for a permanent solution to that problem. They're not looking for the right kind of solution. That solution is a heart problem. That's why Jesus said, they received me not. That's why when you travel to Israel today, every once in a while, you'll see this truck drive around Israel, around Jerusalem, rather. It has on it the cornerstones to the third temple. Temple Mount Faithful, been driving it around for since the, actually the 1980s. And every year or two, they pull it out and drive it around town and have a march. You know why they haven't built it? It's not because Israel doesn't have enough money, I can guarantee you that. It's not because they don't have a mighty enough military to drive out anybody who's in Jerusalem that opposes it. It's because there's no political solution. If they were to build it, they would be at war with the entire Arab world. And so they're looking for a Messiah who will help them build the temple. 
That's going to be a political solution to a religious problem. So the Bible tells us what's going to happen in that day. Notice what verse 21 begins to say. That time that's going to come. The remnant will come back. Jesus speaks actually of the prophecy of Daniel in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, there in verses 15 and 16. Jesus saying, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that means that there is a time that is after Jesus was alive. Antiochus Epiphanes died in BC 163. 163 BC. So it couldn't have been Antiochus Epiphanes. It had to be after Jesus spoke these words. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, here's the next piece of information you need. Approximately 38 years after Jesus spoke these words, the man who would eventually be emperor of Rome, Titus Vespasian, marches into Rome and destroys the temple. There has not been a temple on the Temple Mount. So these words that Jesus spoke can only be fulfilled when there's a temple on the Temple Mount. There still isn't one there. So from the time that Jesus spoke them, the temple was never desecrated. When you see that prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who live in the region of the mountains around Jerusalem, get out of town. Verse 21, and a remnant will return. Remember, that's what one of Isaiah's son's names means, Shir Yeshub. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. In other words, they're going to return to God, not just return to Jerusalem, but return to God. For through your people, O Israel, as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of the land. He's basically saying, I'm going to take care of the problem that you haven't been able to fix yet. For therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. Notice it doesn't say Assyrians. That is a correct translation. It's speaking figuratively of what the Assyrians previously meant to them the Assyrian. Just as the Antichrist has been foreshadowed in the lives of a bunch of people, so the Assyrians foreshadowed the Assyrian, in other words, the Antichrist. And he shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you as in the manner of Egypt. For yet in a very little while, the indignation will cease and my anger and their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like a slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his rod was on the sea, and he'll lift it up in that manner as he did against Egypt. And it shall come to pass, notice again, in that day, that his burden will be taken away from his shoulder, and the yoke from his neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. God's saying he's going to have a permanent solution to the problem that still exists. He's going to break the rod of the oppressor. You know, one of the things that the Jewish people fear the most, and if you track Israeli politics, that's why they keep giving away land. That's why they keep bulldozing settlements. That's why they keep trying to trade anything and everything for one thing, and that's peace. Remember what Jesus said? My peace I give you, not peace as the world gives do I give you, my peace I give you. That's the peace they actually need. That's the peace that comes from knowing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's not the peace that comes from a treaty. That's not the peace that comes from a declaration. That's not the peace that happens because you're, you're at some form of a standoff with your neighbors. At least they won't attack you anymore. No, that's the peace that comes when you know that Jesus Christ is Lord. The yoke that the Antichrist will put on them is going to be destroyed. And so you get a preview in the remaining verses of the battle that still is to come when the Lord finally returns, a battle that we call the Battle of Armageddon or Armageddon. It happens in the Valley of Jezreel. 
this place that is in the north of Israel, to the west and to the south of the Sea of Galilee, a place that's the center of most of the farming now in, in Israel. And eventually it will travel all the way down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the Valley of Judgment, which is right next to Jerusalem. This particular valley really extends almost all the way to Jerusalem. And he has come to Aoth and has passed Migron and Michmash. He is encamped with his equipment. It's an interesting word because it's found only two places in all of the Old Testament in this fashion. And it seems to indicate military might. Now imagine that during this time, military might was a sword. And speaking of something that they hadn't even seen yet. For they have gone along the ridge. They've taken up lodging at Geba. And Ramah is afraid. And Gibeah of Saul has fled. But lift up your voice, O daughter of Galam. These areas are all in the Jezreel Valley. Every last one of them. Each one of these places exists in that place that is described uh, to us there in the book of Revelation in chapter 19 as that final battle when the Lord comes again uh, to fight this final battle against sinful mankind as man will have attacked the nation Israel one last time according to the book of Joel there in chapter 3. And cause it to be heard as far as Laish, poor Anathoth, and Medidma, that is fled, and the inhabitants of Gebam, they seek refuge, refuge, and yet it will remain at Nob in that day that it will shake his fist to the mount of the daughter of Zion, to the hill of Jerusalem. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. And those of high stature will be hewn down. The haughty will be humbled and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And so God says, look, I'm just. I'm going to have the last word. When you travel, it's interesting in this photo as you look out to Mount Tabor and Mount Gilboa across the valley. If you could see one more ridge over Basically, you would drop into the Jordan River Valley. And from the Jordan River Valley, from one side to the other, is about 15 miles. And half of it is Jordan. So from where you're standing right now up on Mount Carmel, you're looking out across where Israel's already staging their military. That's the Ramat David Air Base. It's their main air base. It's the home of most of their strategic fighter aircraft. They move them around. But I believe Israel already knows what's going to happen in that valley. I believe God's actually guided them, directed them. They have sufficient military hardware in that region, uh, certainly to fight off most of the armies of the world until it gets really bad. But praise the Lord for the age of grace and praise the Lord for what comes next. Because in the midst of all of this, God says in chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. When it looks like Assyria had won, when it looks like the Israelites had lost, when it looks like God wasn't going to make good on his promises, God has a word for them. And interesting because we all know what the most famous son of Jesse, who the most famous son of Jesse is. That's David, amen? And he is of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he was born in the city of David. Amen? And so that fresh shoot, that netzer, that grows up out of the stump of Jesse, because Jesse's obliterated. There's not much left of him. But there's enough left to bring forth Messiah. And we'll get to him next. Amen? Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, it gives us a preview. Lord, fortunately, of things that we who know you uh, will never experience, never see. Lord, we will not be here uh, during that time of tribulation, that time of Jacob's trouble. 
that time when you pour out your wrath and indignation on this earth because your word plainly declares that you have not appointed us to wrath, but unto salvation. You've saved us from that wrath through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, Lord, we bless you for your plan. We bless you that you are just, that you've missed nothing, all the inequities and injustices throughout all of time. You've seen each one. And you have a plan, Lord, to redeem to the uttermost. And so, Lord, would you bless us, fill us with faith, cause us to walk with you. And when the Assyrians come knocking at our door, would we tell them we already have a Savior, and his name is Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.